got up here early tonight. There's no excuse if we don't get out early. I'm, I'm hopeless. Appreciate your prayers. Some of you knew I was kind of, well, I was having a, having a bout with a kidney stone this week. So I'm feeling better each day. I'm thinking the Mexican food I eat just sort of dissolved it, but uh, <laughs> I'm feeling fine. Keep praying for Anne with her back. She's still pretty miserable. And uh, it's, I kind of kidded because it was funny at first. She hurt her back bending over, putting an exercise video in the VCR, but <laughs> this thing is just hanging on. But I, as you get older, your injuries just become more flaky. I, today, see my thumbs taped up. I hurt my thumb today putting my hand in my pocket. <laughs> and I, you know how the end of your thumbnail can get a little split? And I went to go into my pocket and it caught and just ripped it all the way down and it was bleeding everywhere and everything. So, you know, I'd rather make a better story up for it, you know, like I just wore it out turning the pages of my Bible or something, but <laughs> it was putting my hand in my pocket. <laughs> it's important for you ladies who have signed up for the women's retreat to pay the rest of your payment. It needs to be in by Sunday. And so, and they'll be calling people if they don't. So, I mean, there's a day or two fudge factor or something. But if, you're, if you think of it, you can do it tonight. There'll be somebody at the table to do it. Also, if you've signed up for it, but now you're thinking of backing out because financially you're really going through a hard time or something, let us know. There'll be a list for that. And we'll see what we can do to, you know, we'll want to cover as many. I mean, if all of a sudden 100 people are going, yeah, it's been a rough month, I'm not sure what we can do. But we'll do as much as we can because we don't want you missing out on an opportunity like this, you know, just because of money. So um, let them know if that's the case and, and we'll get back to you right away and see how the Lord provides. Let's turn over to the book of Hebrews now. If you haven't been here for a week or so, we decided to, after Leviticus, to take a detour for a few weeks into the book of Hebrews because it ties in so well, so, so perfectly with Leviticus. And so while all of the things that we saw and discussed in Leviticus are still fresh in our minds, we want to go to the New Testament commentary on Leviticus. The book of Hebrews, in the King James Version, it it's called the Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, but in the original, the name of it was just Two Hebrews. Um, even calling it the Epistle to the Hebrews, people argue about that because it's a question as to whether it's really an epistle or whether it's just an article, whether it's just a doctrinal um, treatise. And so when you look at the beginning, there are none of those traditional openings that you normally have in an epistle, but when you get to the end, there are a few greetings and things like that that make it sound more like an epistle, so not that it matters that much. Um, it was a book, clearly, that was written, addressed to the Jewish people to, as the church was getting on its feet, to let them know the dangers of turning back to the law as opposed to remaining in the grace that came from the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The tendency that people have to want to live under a set of rules rather than to depend on someone else to take care of them is really what he's trying to avoid here. Um, the Jewish people especially took great pride in their religion and you see examples throughout the New Testament of people who in their arrogance really somehow thought that they had fulfilled the law. 
The rich young ruler who, when Jesus confronted him, when he said, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, yeah, just obey the, the law. And he said, yeah, I've done all that, what else? And that's when Jesus said, well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because he had to get something to show this guy that he couldn't do it on his own. And the purpose of the law was to show us what we weren't capable of. The children of Israel, when the law was given, said all that the Lord has said we will do. They didn't get it. Paul's attitude about himself as a Jew was that he was blameless before the law. So those who tried to follow the law became addicted to that kind of life. And it's easy be to become addicted to a habitual lifestyle, just forming the right habits. But in some ways, that can be deadly because you start to live on autopilot and you don't have an opportunity to depend on the Holy Spirit. You aren't even thinking about what you're doing. It's one of the dangers of those of us who have been Christians for quite a while because we've given up most of those big sins. But what happens, we fall into a rut and we begin to excuse those little sins. We begin to look the other way at certain issues that we have in our lives that we don't deal with. But hey, I'm not doing drugs anymore. I'm not, you know, stealing. I'm not committing adultery. So I start to think I'm doing okay. The thing is, sin kills. And that's what sacrifice is all about. Sin is destructive. And it doesn't matter, it's not just a certain set of sins that destroy us. Even the slightest sin will if we allow it to take root and work in our lives. And so it's a danger, it's a lesson to all of us, Jewish or not, that we are not to live by our own righteousness, by our own works. As the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, the just shall live by faith. And it's that living by faith that is so opposed to what the law was all about, not opposed to what God wanted to do through the law. God wanted the quote, the just shall live by faith, comes from the Old Testament in Habakkuk too. But, but it's the idea that somehow you can satisfy the requirements of the law. We have to get that out of our heads. And so the book of Hebrews is, is driving home the point that says, the, the age of grace, what Jesus Christ has done in fulfilling the shadow that was the law is vastly superior to the old economy. Not that the law was bad, it just didn't work because people sin. And so now we're in an opportunity where our high priest, Jesus Christ, can pave the way for us to come boldly before the throne of grace. A glorious truth, but an important thing for the Jews to understand then that it's not about being Jewish and it's not about keeping the law. You already proved you can't do that. But it's about depending on our high priest to do his work. And so the message to the, to the Hebrew Christians that today we are so blessed compared to any other time in history. And so for us, the same thing. We look and as we read through Hebrews, we're going to see, wow, it's, we are so blessed. God is so good. He's so great as well. Well, it took a while for the book of Hebrews to be accepted into the canon of scriptures. The canon, canon means measuring stick. And, and that's what we refer to the books of the Bible that are accepted as scripture. All the books that we have in our Bible are considered to be canonical or a part of the canon. Hebrews was one of the last books to be universally accepted into the canon of scriptures. It was, it was accepted early on by a lot of people, but then a lot of people questioned it. And finally, when you get into 
into the 600s, it was finally settling in and everyone was saying, yeah, it's really a part of the scriptures. Partly because there are some difficult things to understand in the book of Hebrews. All the warning passages that we see in here that would seem to in some way contradict what we believe, uh, constantly being warned about being careful that you don't fall away, that you don't lose your salvation and so on, and we'll be able to get into those passages. So doctrinally, there were some difficulties in the book of Hebrews. There are some, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith seems to give a revisionist version of history almost as it shows as it shows these heroes in a much better light than the Old Testament shows them, and we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 11. But the main reason why Hebrews was problematic as far as being canonical is because it doesn't say who wrote it. Now, there were people early on that believed Paul wrote it. Then it went for a couple hundred years. Everyone was thinking, nah, Paul didn't write it. And then people thought, yeah, Paul wrote it again. When it was actually put into the canon, it was on the basis of the fact that most likely Paul wrote the book. There aren't a lot of real compelling reasons to believe that he didn't. It's just that because it doesn't say that he wrote it, and because Paul so typically begins his letters by saying, Paul, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ to whoever he was writing to, that's missing greatly. But as you look at the book, it is more of a term paper than it is a letter in a way, because this is Paul, this is a doctrinal statement concerning this bridge of the Old and New Testament. And so you can see why he, he would treat it a little differently because of wanting to have the impact of the way that it was written. Romans is a similar kind of thing, although it comes off a little more like a like a letter, a few more elements of that. But but Romans and Hebrews are probably well, they definitely are the two greatest doctrinal books in the New Testament, painting such a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And they, they're such companion volumes that you can certainly see how they could be Paul's. When you read, like, in Colossians and, and Galatians, you see so many of the same thoughts that Paul presents that, that are presented here in Hebrews. Um, there are some people who say, it was obviously someone who knew Paul and worked with him. And if you go, wait a minute, if it's somebody who knew Paul and it's that Pauline, why not say it was probably Paul? Whoever it was, they were in prison in Rome at the time, we find out at the end of the book. Whoever it was, Timothy traveled with them, ministered to them, was in jail with them and had just been released. And they used Timothy as a, as a messenger. Um, that sure sounds like Paul. Now, at one point, they said the book was written too late to be Pauline because the dates of Hebrews were between 84 AD and like almost 100 AD. But since then, the thinking has become more that, no, it had to be written much earlier. And primarily the reason why we believe in an early date of Hebrews is because it refers to sacrifices as though they're still taking place. The temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD. They weren't, after that, doing any sacrifices. Not only that, um, certainly if the temple had been destroyed, the author of the book writing to the Hebrews would have mentioned that. So I've probably bored you with all that, I know, but it's, it's important to kind of get a grasp on it. Some other reasons why, well, some other suggestions is there isn't a good suggestion, alternative, as to if Paul didn't write it, who did? Some of the theories, oh, and by the way, one reason why people feel like 
Paul didn't write it is it does seem to linguistically be a little more sophisticated than Paul's books. But we know Paul said when he came to the churches, he deliberately dummied down his message. He came with simplicity. So the fact that this is written in a real high level of Greek, and then there were people who said it was probably originally written in Hebrew and then translated to a high level of Greek, but there's no reason to believe that. There have never been any manuscript evidence of that. But it's a high level of Greek, but since he's writing an intellectual sort of treatise, certainly Paul was capable of this kind of Greek. He, he was, had the finest education under Gamaliel. He, Paul would have had the grasp of this kind of language, and you're hard-pressed to find other people, New Testament writers, who did. Luke is one candidate because this much resembles the Greek that Luke uses in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Luke, as a doctor, wrote at a very high level. And so some people have suggested that maybe Luke actually worked with Paul on this thing, but Paul could have done it himself with no problem. So, and, and, but other people have suggested Barnabas, I don't know why, because he would have known Timothy, but there's really no evidence of Barnabas writing it. There are a lot of people who said that it probably was Apollos, and that's probably the number two choice among most people. Apollos, who was this great orator, and they're just assuming that Apollos was someone who would be able to write at this kind of level and have this kind of knowledge. But being a great orator doesn't make you a great philosopher or theologian, and we don't have any basis for believing that Apollos was that. Apollos was trained by Aquila and Priscilla. Actually, it lists Priscilla's name first, Priscilla and Aquila. And so there are some people who think Priscilla wrote the book. And since it was a woman writing it, she didn't put her name to it because it wouldn't sell in those days, especially in the Jewish culture. Again, real flimsy evidence for any of those kinds of things. There are, I've heard of, I know I've heard of at least 14 suggestions as to who wrote Hebrews. But when it all comes down to it, number one, it doesn't really matter. Number two, it sure seems like Paul. As you read it through, it seems like it. The use of the just shall live by faith, as he did in Romans chapter 1. He has it here in chapter 10. It's an obscure passage from Habakkuk chapter 2. For somebody, and it's the only place the just shall live by faith appears in Scripture, is in the original quote and in Romans and Hebrews. So that causes me to lean towards Paul as well. Um, but the best reason I ever heard, one of my old professors, he was like, when I was at Biola, he was 90 or something at the time, just a brilliant guy, but really funny too, I love this guy, but after he went through all of the different ideas and why he thought Paul wrote Hebrews, he said, but finally, this is the definitive reason. He said, if Paul didn't write Hebrews, then Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, and 13 is an unlucky number. He said, if Paul wrote Hebrews, he wrote 14 books, twice the perfect number, there you have it. <laughs> and students are taking him seriously and writing it down like, okay, great, that's the definitive reason. The Holy Spirit wrote the book. It has all the markings and it was accepted even despite not having a, a, a known author. It was accepted eventually as canonical. Again, all the internal evidence. Oh, another thing that's kind of important, over in 2 Peter, Peter, in writing to the Jews, said, just like Paul said in his letter to you and in his other epistles. So he talks about a letter that Paul wrote to the Jews, separate from Paul's epistles. And if this isn't the book, 
then Paul must have written some other letter to the Hebrews that Peter knew about that nobody else knew about. So that one's a pretty, I think that's a pretty strong case for Pauline too when Peter makes a statement like that. But anyway, let's jump into the book. That's way more important than who wrote it. Sunday, we looked over these first three verses. And again, the, the stage is set to make a point that God has been revealing himself in a piecemeal way throughout history to the fathers by the prophets, but now we have the ultimate picture of God. Now we have the ultimate presentation of him, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So he says, now we have the superior revelation, God the Son. And we see that he's God by the fact that he owns everything. He's appointed heir of all things. Remember Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth, over in Matthew 28. Through whom also he made the worlds, or the eons, Colossians chapter 1, everything that was ever made was made by him. So he is the owner, he's the creator, who being the brightness of his glory, that is, he is the shining glory of God, that Shekinah, that, that light that comes forth from God, that's him. Again, over in John chapter 1, it says, when talking about the incarnation, and it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's after saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So he has all the glory of God. He's the express image of his person. He is the exact representation, literally, of God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the one that holds everything together. Paul would say in Colossians, by him all things consist or hold together. When he had by himself purged our sins... So not only is all of this true, but he did it all by himself. He wasn't a sidekick. He's not like Barney Fife to God's Andy. He's God. He's not a, he's not a second class sort of, you know, yeah, kind of help out. And so he purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He fulfilled everything we needed for our redemption. He is and remains God. And he's in heaven, sitting there at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He finished what he had to do. And so in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Angels are interesting creatures. God made them. We don't know how many there are, but there are a lot of them. And these are creatures that God made in order to do his bidding. We know that a part of their job is to protect us. We see that throughout scripture. I don't know if everyone has their own guardian angel, but, but Jesus refers to the fact that children do. So I hope they don't, we don't wear them out when we're younger and, and lose them later. I, when I get to heaven, if I find my angel, I'm going to ask him about a few days where he was. But, you know, <laughs> these angels are there to do the bidding of God. The name means messenger. But it's because these, they're kind of, we're fascinated with angels. And as a result, historically, you go through periods of time where angels are the big thing. I remember back in the 70s when Billy Graham wrote his book about angels and then everyone was into it. Then there was that one goofy, um, what was their name? So those people wrote a whole, they started building a whole theology around angels. And they talked about, I, I, I suspect, 
I can't remember their name. We'll edit it into the tape later if I think of it. But can anybody remember who they were? They, they would like, they told stories about how they'd go downstairs at night and an angel was down there playing with their dog and it was, they'd be flying and an angel's out on the wing and Hunter, Charles Hunter, I think was the guy's name and his wife. And, and you know, people love to grab on to this stuff. People love to, ooh, angels. And it's kind of a fad now. And there's nothing wrong with angel pins and, you know, obviously the California angels. Yeah, you know, world's champions. That, that's something. Angels in the outfield. But, you know, if you watch, like, the Disney Channel, all the Disney movies, which is like the occult move, you know, uh, the occult channel, I call it, because, I mean, everything they do is occultic. But... They love the whole angel angle along with ghosts and goblins and all that other kind of stuff. The thing about angels is they aren't pretend. Now, people can make up a lot of funny stuff about them, but they are all around us. And the Bible talks about being careful because sometimes some have, anyway, entertained angels unawares. Maybe just a reference to Abraham when the angels came to him, but it may be that they're around a lot more than we think. And so they're a fascinating topic, but here he puts the angels into perspective because at that time they thought so highly of angels that it was an issue as to whether Jesus was maybe just another angel, which by the way the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and a lot of other you know, groups believe, or that somehow he was subservient to the angels. Maybe an angel on a little higher class, maybe an angel on a little lower class. And so here in Hebrews, they want to make it absolutely clear, Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is not just another one of the angels, not at all. He is far superior to them. And one reason why they have to make this point too is that the Jewish people tended to glorify, one reason why they made such a big deal about the law is because it was said to be delivered by angels. And so if the angels were the one who took the law from, from God and gave it to Moses, the ones who were dictating a lot of these things, then they felt like, whoa, an angel. And that's why Paul talks about, hey, even if an angel of God comes and tells you something different than the gospel, don't believe it. And so here he goes into this discussion and says, after talking about what Jesus had done, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He said, don't even put the angels in a class with Jesus Christ. I think most of us, if we saw an angel, we would, whoa, how cool. Maybe some of you have seen angels. I, I know people who have. I don't think I have. Um, that there are some people that I wondered, you know, just came along at the right time, but I haven't had a hitchhiker disappear out of my car or anything. But you know, I had a friend who was a, who was a missionary in China, and when the communists came in and took over, and at their mission station, the, an army came in to, you know, march on them, and, and they thought, well, we're dead. And the army marched up to their little compound and then looked scared, turned around, and walked off. And they were protected. They were able to get away. And later, through one of the churches, years later, he met someone, and they said, I came to your compound. And, and the guy said to him, why did you leave? Why didn't you guys come and kill us? And he said, who were those guys? And what are you talking about? He said there were these huge, glowing figures at each corner of the missions compound, and we weren't going to mess with them. And no doubt those were angels. But no matter how much we think, whoa, that'd be so cool to see, we get to see Jesus, 
And he's the angels are they're just servants, they're just slaves. They're, they're, they can't compare to him. But he goes on to make this, this point through the rest of this chapter, really, and he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? That's a quote from Psalm chapter 2. Talking about, the chapter starts out by saying, why do the heathen rage, the people imagine a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, everybody's going and they're going to get him. He that sits in the heavens laughs, and then he says that this, he says, you're my son, this day have I begotten you, ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. And then it says, you're going to smash them with a rod of iron, you're going to clean them up, it's going to be all over when they come against you. And so here, the author of Hebrews is identifying that prophecy in Psalm 2 and saying, that was about Jesus. And again, through, there are several quotes here in this chapter, and they're all for the purpose of, of taking people who know the Old Testament and saying, let's look back and look how many times God said something that wouldn't have made sense unless you know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That would have, you'd look at it and go, well, that must be kind of figurative. And you wonder when you read some of these passages in Psalms especially, what were they thinking when they wrote it? And what did people think when they sang these songs and when they discussed them? They probably wouldn't have made a lot of sense until Jesus came. But again, clearly he says, God is saying, you're my son, I have begotten you today. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, the, uh, that, that thing, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, that comes actually from where Nathan is talking to David after David repented of his sin with Bathsheba. And he was saying, you know, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to bring up a seed after you, and he'll be able to, and he'll be my son. Now, you know, referring to Solomon, the, pat, the quote here is broken off right before it starts to talk about forgiving his sins and things like that. And sometimes this is the way prophecy is. There will be a real double entendre to what is stated in the scriptures. There's one level meaning and yet someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit goes back and says, there was something else in that phrase that you might have missed. Now, there are some confusing things here because where it says, today I have begotten you, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son, I'll bring the firstborn into the world. You have that same problem over in Colossians chapter 1 where it refers to Jesus as the firstborn. And there are many people, cultists especially, people who deny the deity of Christ, who say, look, how can he be an heir of God and be God? Not only that, how can he be the firstborn? How can he be the begotten? They'll even take you to John 3, 16, the only begotten son. That means he's the one that was, that was born. So how could he be from the beginning? How could he have created all things? He himself must be a created being. But that's certainly not true. If, if firstborn meant you're the first one who was born, the way we would tend to use it, then that might be a problem. If begotten means that you were actually born from someone, and if, if it's that simple definition, then you would have a problem. Of course, you'd have other problems as well. Because if, if he's the firstborn among many, well, how can he be the only begotten? There's something about him that he's the only one. Now, 
to understand it, we need to understand that in the Old Testament economy, in their culture, being firstborn wasn't about just being born first. It was about all of the blessings, the privileges, and the authority that came from being in first position. It doesn't have anything to do with duration. There are several examples in the Old Testament of times when someone would become a firstborn. In fact, just so that you, you might want to jot this one down, but turn over to Psalm 89. Just to, because this is a big bone of contention among a lot of people. But in Psalm 89, look at verse uh, 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, here God is talking about taking someone, and David's been going through this hard time and stuff, and, and God is saying, because he's crying out to me, I'm going to make him my firstborn. And then he defines what he means by firstborn. I'll make him greater. I'll put him in charge. Now, you, can't, you can adopt someone, but you can't make them your firstborn. If, if firstborn just means you're the one that was born first. But here and there are plenty of other places in the Old Testament where you see, and you can look them up in a concordance if you want, where firstborn is referring to your position, your authority, your inheritance, your privilege. If God can make someone a firstborn, then you don't have a problem here with Jesus being firstborn. It's just saying he's over everything else. And so um, let all the angels of God worship him. This is kind of interesting. You might, in verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, you'll have a hard time looking in a concordance or in a Bible program and finding out where that's a quote from. And the reason is, it's actually a quote from Deuteronomy, but in our version, it doesn't come off that way. But here, the author of Hebrews is quoting the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Um, that's, a, that's the Greek version of the um, Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, which means the 70, because there were 70 scholars supposedly who worked on it. That's another thing that's puzzling to some people as to if Paul wrote Hebrews, I have to be fair. In Hebrews, the quotes are always from the Septuagint. Now, most places the Septuagint and the Hebrew Old Testament are real similar, and so you wouldn't even notice the difference. But there are some glaring instances, such as this quote in Deuteronomy, that changes it quite a bit. And so a lot of people would go, come on, Paul in his other books quotes the Septuagint sometimes, but he also quotes the Hebrew Old Testament. And so um, in Hebrews, but I think that's easily explained by when you're trying to do a, a, a real theological treatise rather than just a personal letter. If you're going to use a higher form of language, might have used the New Testament, the Old Testament that they would have been most familiar with, that they would have probably been using at the time. We see places where Jesus quotes from the Septuagint as well. But this is one of those examples where it's a quote specifically from the Septuagint because the verse over there in Deuteronomy 3.2 doesn't quite match up. But he says that the angels of God are supposed to worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? That's a quote from over in the Psalm, Psalm 109, I think it is. And the idea is the angels are spirits who are there to minister who are there to just do his bidding. And so as compared to Jesus Christ, who the angels of God are going to worship.
But in contrast to the son, he says, and this is this great quote from Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, more than anyone else. And so here, this quote from Psalm 45, specifically making it clear. And if you read it over in Psalm 45, you'll see, wow, it's hard to figure out what he's talking about. God's like, you know, schizophrenic or something. How, he, how does God call someone God? The author of Hebrews says, you should have picked that one up. God is saying to Jesus, your God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so that is, Hebrews 1.8 is one of those passages for the deity of Christ that I love to share with people. And, and because the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God is such an important um, doctrine, it's good for you to keep in the back of your mind or jot down in the back of your Bible a few scriptures at least to support it. There are a bunch of them. But Hebrews 1.8 is a good one. Um, there are people who will say, oh, that should be translated, thy throne is God. But that makes no sense at all. It's just they don't want it to say what it says. He's God. Um, of course, John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was God. Isaiah 9.6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name will be called, wonderful counselor, the mighty God. That's another good one. Um, Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are a lot of others too, but lots of scriptures, but Hebrews 1.8 is a great one for that. And sometime read Psalm 45. It's, it's an amazing passage. And then he says, not only that, he says to Jesus, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll fold them up and they'll be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. So what he's saying is that God the Father is actually saying to the Son, you, Lord, and if you go back into, into Psalm 102 where this is a quote, Lord is in all caps. That's Yahweh, Jehovah, God, his personal name. The Father is calling Jesus Christ Yahweh. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying that's who he's talking to. He's saying, Lord, in the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. He already said earlier over here he made the worlds. Colossians 1 tells us nothing was ever made that was made without Jesus Christ doing it. So here is God the Father taking praise that was initially as it was written intended to, to be praising God. And the author of Hebrews is saying the God that he's talking about is Jesus Christ, the one we serve. And so... And then he goes on in verse 13, but to which of the angels, by the way, you know, you want to worship angels, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? That's a quote from Psalm 110. So again, taking this and saying, did he ever tell an angel you can sit at my right hand so we can finish what we've started? Absolutely not. 
Who else is said to be sitting at the right hand of God? And yet he's saying, hey, that never happened with an angel. And then he finishes the chapter up by saying, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? He said, what angels are, they aren't objects to be worshipped. Whenever people worship angels, the angels rebuke the people who are worshipping them. But he's saying, these guys are there to help. They're there to do what God says. And then amazingly, they're sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Those who will inherit salvation, who's that? That's us. Romans chapter 8 makes that really clear. We are joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. So he's saying, look, you're sitting there worshiping an angel or worse yet thinking Jesus is an angel. These guys work for you. Don't you understand this? Don't you get it? They are there just to do God's bidding to be your assistants. So don't elevate them into any great position. Don't get all excited if they show up. Don't pray to them. Don't even suppose that even the highest angel could hold a candle to Jesus Christ. On into chapter 2 here, he says, Therefore, on the basis of this superiority of who Jesus Christ is, and the fact that angels are there to serve us, we're the inheritors of salvation, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, this is one of the first warnings in Hebrews, and there are a bunch of them. I mean, when we get to chapter 4, when we get to chapter 6, when we start to see these major warning passages of Hebrews, a whole lot of reason why Hebrews was, was written was to warn believers, don't think that because you know, you're saying the right thing, you're believing the right thing, you're going to church, don't get the idea that you're automatically okay. Don't be so secure that you will neglect and you'll ignore and you won't pay attention to what God is telling you. Make sure that you're the real thing. I don't think that what he's saying is, hey, people are losing their salvation all over the place. Personally, I don't know and I don't even care if it's possible to lose your salvation. Now that's going to shock a lot of you one way or the other. Some of you are, oh, you don't, you know, of course you can. And others are, oh, of course you can't. And the whole thing is, if you lose it, whatever you had, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't eternal life. Because there's one thing about eternal life that I know absolutely certain. It lasts forever. So if it ends, guess what? Call yourself whatever you want. You didn't have eternal life. You had temporary life. But he's warning people who are identifying as a part of the church to say, be careful. Lest, and, and interestingly, he says, lest we drift away. He's including himself in that category and saying, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. We need to pay attention to what God has said. I think if, if this was the only verse that we had to support it, it's plenty of reason for us to go to church, to study the Bible every opportunity we have, to, to store his word away in our heart, even if it didn't purify, even if it didn't purify you from sin, even it didn't, if it didn't give you guidance in life, even if it didn't help you to grow, even if it didn't help you to see Jesus more or anything else, if he's saying, look, we need to really pay attention so we don't drift away, 
That would be reason enough for me to go, wow, you know, well, I'm sure this doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. I'm sure he's talking. Make it say whatever you want. What if it just means what it says? I mean, what if God actually was telling the truth here? And we have all these excuses why we don't have to worry about it. I am concerned. Do I believe for a second that I can lose my salvation? I, I would never want to lose my salvation. And I, and I believe nobody is able to pluck me out of the Father's hand. And I'm not jumping. I don't know what happens if I jump. But if Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, we'll say Aquila this time, if she says, look, we need to pay attention to what God says so we don't slip away, then... I'm going to pay attention to what it says. Whatever, however, we're going to end up explaining that in the long run. Four, if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So he's saying, look, whenever the word was spoken through the angels, God who at sundry times and in divers manners, past times, past ways, spake in time past to the fathers. But if that was all carried out and was true... Now, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now he's flashing back to hath spoken unto us by his son there in the beginning of chapter one. And now he's saying, okay, here's a superior revelation Here's, a, here's God in the flesh. Here's someone who is everything that God is. He is God completely. Now, he said, if the law was enough to condemn people and it came through angels, and if Jesus is so much greater than the law, listen up, pay attention, he's saying, because we are going to answer for ourselves and what we do with this revelation that God has given us. If the old time, if old school gospel was legit, well, new school, new revelation, much superior revelation, boy, we need to pay attention. How are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Kind of an interesting concept. You know, first in verse 1 there, lest we drift away. And now in verse 3, what happens if we neglect so great a salvation? What's going to be our escape? You know, Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. We are not saved at all by works. Our salvation does not depend at all on what we do. However, when we are saved, when we are God's children, it's not to sit there and wait for him to come back. It demands our attention. Being a child of God bears with it responsibilities. And somehow it's tied up with something really bad that can happen if you neglect it. And I, and I don't even begin to understand all that he is saying here. And I just want to confess that from the beginning. But what I do know is, I know a lot of people who get saved, good things start happening in their lives, but then they begin to let it go. You remember when you were a kid, you just wanted that new bike, you wanted it so bad, 
You know, you could taste it. And finally, there it was. There's your new bike. And you'd polish it and clean it for a while. And then it starts getting a few scratches, a little rust. Then you just start, you know, you don't clean it anymore. Then you start leaving it out in the yard. Parents yelling at you, you know, come on, the bike's going to get stolen. You're going, that bike's so ugly, nobody would steal it. And begin to neglect it. We all do that. Most of us do that with our cars. You know, I think of one of my first cars that I had was a 39 Plymouth. Had 30,000 miles on it, coupe, beautiful. Bought it from a guy over in Leisure World who had lost his driver's license. And I was pretty excited about it. But I hate to admit it, but, but then when I got it, I probably got it in the mid-60s sometime or late 60s. A 1939 car didn't seem all that old. You know, I mean, it was... It was around before my parents were born. So I didn't take that good a care of it. The biggest deal to me about that car was I could do a burnout like for 50 yards in reverse. It wouldn't do them forward, but it would do them backwards. So I thought that was pretty cool. The thing just began to, you know, I, I didn't take care of it. I never washed it, never washed any of the cars I had. But, you know, this one in particular, pretty soon I was, I didn't care if I kept it or, or got rid of it. I sold it. I bought it for $450, I sold it for $400. Today, in retrospect, thinking how nice that car was, what, if I had it today, I'd put a V8 in it, I'd do all this stuff, I'd soup it up, I'd, oh, I'd take really good care of it. Ann's car would be out in the driveway and this thing would be in the garage. <laughs> but the perspective of time causes you to think about value. We neglect things that are commonplace to us. And I know that for a lot of us, I know that I have my days when I neglect my salvation, when I don't do those things that I know I need to do in order to nurture my relationship with the Lord. Hey, most of us who are married neglect our marriages some days, some for weeks, months, even years. What happens? Deterioration sets in. Corruption, problems. And, and so the author of Hebrews is saying, your salvation is that way. Don't just take it for granted. Don't just sit on it, okay, I've got it, it's on the shelf, I'm covered, it's my insurance policy. But he says, look, how do you think that you're going to escape? How are you going to pull this off if you neglect this kind of salvation, if you neglect fellowship with this kind of a God who's this great? And so he goes on and says, uh, Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles. This is, and gifts to the Holy Spirit according to his own will. This is kind of a summary of what he's talking about in verse 2 of chapter 1 when he says, In these last days he's spoken unto us by his Son. In this case, the signs and wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all to confirm what the truth was, all to show what God was done. And then after presenting all of that evidence... Now it's like, okay, is that enough for you? Have I proven it? The ultimate miracle, Jesus Christ raising from the dead. So he says, how can you miss this? How can you step over it or look at it? Then in verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So as he was referring back to some of the end time stuff and even in chapter 1 where it says in these last days, that's the reference here. He says, 
when the world wraps it up, when we finally get to that time when the Lord comes back and, and everything that's wrong is righted and Satan is destroyed and all of his angels and, and we will rule and reign with Christ and, and we receive the inheritance that he has promised us and all this, he says, that's not going to be in charge of angels at all. He hasn't put it in charge of angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, and this is from Psalm chapter 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this is a, has kind of a dual fulfillment because it's talking about how God blesses man, how God puts man in authority. And at the same time, though, it's specifically talking about Jesus Christ as he is ultimately the one who will rule and reign. We will get to reign with him. But where it says, um, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's the idea that, hey, look, here, we're just people. Oh, you've got all these angels, you've got this other stuff happening, you've got this huge universe, all kinds of, you know, solar systems and galaxies. And, I, and when you think about man, what are we really? Sometimes when I'm out at night on the beach and looking out at the stars and, and just seeing how vast the ocean is and looking at the sands of the sea, I just think, man, who am I? that God would care about me, that he would reveal himself to me, that he would send his son to die for me. The bigger I see the world is, the more small I feel. And yet, as he says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would take care of him? Hey, you made him a little lower than the angels. Now, that doesn't mean most likely that man is underneath the angels at all. He was just saying just the opposite. The, a, a better translation for that is for a little while. It's just little is all that it says. But probably what it's talking about is for a little while you made him lower than the angels. And then you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now this is a prophecy from Psalm 8. This is a picture of Jesus Christ who came and became a man. You'd look at mankind, you look at the earth, you look at what a mess we've made of things, and you'd go, boy, what is man, that you would even think of him. But God did think of him. He was mindful of him. He sent his son, and for a moment, for a short period of time, a very little while, he actually was, became lower than the angels because he took our sin upon himself, and he died. But as a result, God has crowned him with glory. God has elevated him. Philippians 2 tells this story when it says he didn't hang on to being God, didn't regard it as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, you know, became a man, likeness of man, even humbled himself to the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. So here the only problem, if God was going to think of man, he had to send his son to become a man, to even humble himself below the angels, and he created the angels. And the angels weren't created to ever have man underneath them. No angel was ever supposed to be in charge of a person the angels are created as ministering servants to serve people. But Jesus Christ humbled himself so much so that he even made himself lower than the angels for a brief period of time. And then God has crowned him with glory and honor 
and set him over the works of your hands. And ultimately, that is all fulfilled in us as well because of what God does for us, because of what Jesus did for us. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So what he's saying is we're talking about his exaltation. We're talking about man's elevated position, the way that God wants to bless man. And this is one thing where the humanists have a point. See, there is something to human worth. There is something to human dignity. There is something that God designed within us as he placed the image of God within us. It is God's desire to see us lifted up. It is God's desire to see man in a glorified position. And he put him in that position. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, you couldn't have given humans a better deal than that. No one's more of a humanist than God is by creating man in that way. And yet, because of the fall, Man has hopelessly, apart from someone fixing it, placed himself underneath all of creation. Hey, something happened between when Adam was in charge of all of the animals and he was naming them, and now the animals, well, they're taking over. They're, you know, there are a lot of animals you better not mess with. You can name them anything you want, but they're going to name you lunch, and they're going to eat you because it's a fallen world. And you can make up all the high view of mankind that you want, but the fact is, we're the ones that are messing this world up. We're the ones that have created the problem. But it's still God's plan to once again elevate mankind. And I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't think there's anything that will elevate mankind more than that, that will, that will bring ultimate glory to humanity than that. And so, in a sense, there's nothing more humanistic than to place ourselves under the cross, to allow ourselves to have a fresh start, to have God bless us. He doesn't do that in order to put us down. He does it to lift us up. And he does that in a way that we could never work it up on our own. There's no way we could pat each other on the back enough to feel so good as the way that we feel when we understand that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord, he is the God of the universe, and he's for us. As again, in Colossians 2 where it says, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form, and then it says, and in him you've been made complete. You've got it all. What more could we desire than him? And so he says here, well, right now it doesn't look like he's in charge. Right now, it doesn't look like everything has been put at his feet. But he said, though I may not see that in my life, though I may look at my life and see it looks like it's out of control, but he says there is something. We see Jesus. And ultimately, when we see Jesus, like he says here, that changes everything else. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. And he, by the grace of God, was going to taste death for everyone. Seeing Jesus looking unto Jesus, as Paul said. You know, the well, that slips, not Paul, but later we're going to see it uh, in Hebrews 12. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you know, let's lay aside the weight, sin that so easily besets us, and run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus. And I think, in a way, if you were going to have a theme of the book of Hebrews, 
Looking at Jesus would be a pretty, pretty good shot at it. Because what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, let me paint the picture for you if you don't get it. You look at Jesus and you're covered. He is all you need. He has a plan. He's fulfilling his plan. His plan started way back when man first fell. And he's been working all of this out throughout history, throughout the promises to the fathers, throughout all of the, all of the law and all of the ceremony and all of that stuff. And finally, in the humbling of himself to the point of death, And it all is there so that when you see him, you'll realize he's going to save you. He's going to take care of it. And he's big enough to do it. He's big enough to do it. You know, sometimes we look at ourselves and our own sin and think, who could help me out? Often people get in a situation where, you know, somebody says to them, boy, is there any way I could help you? And you feel like saying, help me, you? I mean, what, this is bigger. It'd be great if you could help me, but you just can't help me. This is bigger than you are. This is something that you can't handle. There have been times when baptizing kind of big guys, that it's, they can get away from you. I, I've, never, I've never drowned any, but, uh, you know, there are times when I just realize, oh, man, am I going to be able to get this, especially if they don't cooperate and they just kind of lay back. Sometimes, some of them are real buoyant, but if they're real muscular too, boy, they can sink like a rock. They they blow their air out and it's just like, oh man, am I going to get them up? But one of the hardest people that I ever baptized was a little skinny guy. He came out, he was the first guy to get baptized. And he was just just a little bony skeleton of an old guy. I think he was in his late 70s or something. And he had been at the beach all day. He was really tan. And he had suntan baby oil or something all over him. And he comes out and he's going, I'm in pretty good shape for my however old he said he was. And I go, yeah. And the water was kind of cold that day. And it was also one of those days where it's kind of shallow and then all of a sudden it just drops off really deep. And I'm just going, man, I'm not even used to the water. And this guy came to me first and I, okay, I'll baptize you. And so I get a really good grip on his wrist. I prayed with him. And when I put him in the water, it was so cold, he just started thrashing like crazy. And and with that oil on him, he just slipped out of my grip and he went over. And and I look at Pastor Chuck and I'm like, this guy's under, he's going to drown. And I hadn't even got my hair, what, what little of it I have, wet. And I, so I just dived into the water. It was like 10 feet deep. And I got my arms around his waist and kicked and fought and dragged him up to the top. And water was coming out of his nose and his ears. And he's just coughing and choking. And, and my line for the baptism just moved away. <laughs> Chuck just said, next. And... <laughs> But sometimes doesn't life feel that way to you? It's like, I just don't know if I can get a hold on this. Sometimes it's so big, but sometimes it's just so little and squirmy that it's like, how do I deal with these little hassles and these little problems? I, last Wednesday night, as I'm laying there with this kidney stone, and I, it, I got home from church, I was, boy, I, it, we had a great time last week and just talking with people and sharing in the word and everything. And I got home, I just sat down to relax and then I watched the news. I fell asleep about 20 minutes later, woke up, it was like somebody was stabbing me with a knife. And I'm going, oh man, what is this? And here Anne can't really get in the car easily because of her back. And, I, and plus it's you know, late at night, so I decide I'll drive myself 
myself to the emergency room. I thought maybe an appendix had burst or something. And it's this little four millimeter kidney stone and I'm crying like a baby. I'm acting, I mean, it's just, I'm doubled over in pain. I'm walking, I feel like strangling the people in the emergency room at the triage. Can't you tell I'm dying? You know, can you do something about this? And it's so bad when you get the CAT scan and you find out how little that thing is, I'm going, God, what a wimp I am, what a baby. But sometimes it's those little things that get you. Sometimes something happens and it throws you off and you're going, why is this bugging me so much? Somebody says some dumb little thing to you and you're acting like your life is over. Well, it just happens. Sometimes the problems are huge and sometimes it's just the little ones that get to you. But for all of them and for each of them, God is sufficient, but we have to look at him. Because if we take our eyes off him, like Peter when he was walking on water, did pretty good while he was looking at him. Started showing off to the other disciples, hey, look at me, I'm walking. And took his eyes off Jesus and he sunk. And we will all do that. And so, again, here, I don't even know how I got there, but we need to see Jesus. And then in the end of verse 9 there, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. We need to look at him because he's the only one that can do something about this. And so he says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, this God, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or mature, complete through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren." saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So what he's saying here is there was something that had to happen in Jesus, whereby he actually had to go through this suffering, not even just the death, but for him to be prepared to accomplish our redemption, there was preparation. There was temptation. There was suffering that had to take place. And I don't completely understand that, but it's consistent with the model of the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, where you had to do certain things to even get ready for the sacrifice. And here, amazingly, it says that he was made complete or perfect in verse 10 through sufferings. And, you know, later on over in, in fact, we can turn over there because it's in Hebrews, but over in Hebrews chapter 5, states this even even more clearly. And uh, he says, look in verse eight, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think when we get to heaven and we come to understand completely all that Jesus had to do for us, all that it took for him to accomplish our salvation, we're just gonna be so amazed. Because even Jesus, who was God, God in the flesh, God who became a man, yet he had to suffer. He had to go through not just death. You'd think, hey, look, if all he had to do was die, get him as a baby in the manger, sacrifice him, sprinkle his blood, and we're saved, right? No, he had to live the life that he lived. He had to be tempted the way he was tempted, and he had to suffer Because it's not just by his death that we're saved. It's by his stripes we are healed. And somehow... And we, I can't give you a real clear picture of what this means, but I believe it because the Bible says it. Somehow there were things being accomplished in his completeness that involved all of the suffering that he went through, all of the difficulties that he went through. And he did it for us 
And he calls us his brethren, it says in verse 11. And again, the quote from Psalm 22, I'll declare your name to my brethren. And then I'll put my trust in him comes from over in 2 Samuel. And, and then here am I and the children whom God has given me. That's a quote from Isaiah 8.16. The emphasis here is now, okay, we see who Jesus is. He's huge. He's God. We recognize he's way beyond. Forget the angels. He's way past the angels. But then he says, understand this. He is a very personal God. Because amazingly, this God calls you his brothers and his sisters. This God says, I want to be in your family. I want you in my family. And so you have this. There are two theological terms that you'll hear kicked around. Well, maybe it depends who you hang out with. You may never hear them kicked around, but they're, they're the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. Transcendence, if something transcends everything, it refers to the fact that God is other than us. He's over, above, and outside of his creation. That's his transcendence. In other words, he's really big. His eminence means that he is immediately present in all of his creation. So he's way out there, but he's right in here. He's right with us. And it's that most religions that err either make God very transcendent, but not eminent, or they make God eminent, not transcendent. Somebody who makes him transcendent is people who believe that he's just way out there, but we're never going to have any touch with him. The, the Muslim faith is, is uh, you know, Islam is similar to that. God is just very distant. On the other hand, you have your, you know, Hindus who have God as being a part of, you know, they're basically pantheists and polytheists and pantheists. And, you know, you have your Buddhists who are like that where God is everywhere. He is in everything. The New Age movement. Oh, God is in these fake plants. But see, oh, he's very eminent. But then he's not transcendent. And so the picture that's being painted here is, I can't exaggerate for you how big God is, how great he is, how he is over and above everything. But then, let me tell you something. He comes and he will abide in your heart. He comes to you and he says, come on, we're brothers. You're my sister. I want to be one of you. And that's the glorious truth of, Hebrew, of uh, you know, over in John 1.14 where the word became flesh. And that's the same message that's being shared here in Hebrews. Inasmuch then as the children, verse 14, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the, and he, and he, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. All that is to say that the only way he could save us is if he became one of us. It's not just that he desires, someone who's much greater than I can say to me, I'm one of the little people, you know, uh, let me hang out with you. Stories like the Prince and the Pauper, where a wealthy ruler kind of goes and lives among the common people for a while until life gets too tough, and then they go, okay, that's enough. Now I want to go back and be a regular person. Politicians do this. 
You know, they'll go out into a crowd and try to be real. Oh, they'll hold your baby and kiss your baby until the baby needs diapers changed. And you're not going to see a politician go, here, just give me a pamper. I'll take care of it. Or, hey, Mr. President, would you mind babysitting my kid for a couple hours? I'd like to do some shopping over here. And the, it, no, of course not. They will lower themselves in order to be accommodating to you, in order to be really patronizing is what it is. But what he's saying here is he doesn't just patronize you. He doesn't just say, well, okay, I'm so magnanimous that I will reach out to you and we'll consider ourselves brothers. No, it's, it's an actual thing. He made himself, he had to make himself an actual relative. This isn't the Pope bending down to wash someone's feet as a, as a gesture of, you know, oh, I'll humble myself for a little bit and then you can kiss my ring and I'm going to get back in my Pope mobile and head down the road. This is, this is God who said, no, this is for real. I not only want to be like a brother to you, I will be your brother. I will be your sister. We're going to be related and I'll go first and I'll be the one who's sacrificed because it had to happen that way for him to be our high priest. If he wasn't tempted and if he didn't suffer, how could he really understand what we're going through? How could he intercede for us? How could he be our high priest unless he had walked a mile in our shoes? And he did more than that. He walked that mile that, on the Via Dolorosa that none of us could have walked, that none of us, if we had, it wouldn't have even made a difference. But he says, no, not only I'll walk a mile in your shoes, I'll take your shoes and I'll walk right into the depths of hell for you so that you'll be saved. I'll walk to my death. I'll wear your shoes and the nails will be put through them as they hammer me to the cross. Because the only way he could do it is not if he was like a brother to us. He had to be related to us. Remember in Leviticus, the law of the kinsman redeemer, he had to be our relative or it doesn't work. And so he was willing to do that, subject himself to the temptation, the pain, the suffering. And then in, that, in verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He did what it took, and that was a lot. And he became our high priest as a result. So from chapters 1 and 2, we see Jesus elevated, superior to the angels, incredibly God of all gods, creator of everything, sustainer of everything, the guy who redeemed by himself. And then here he is. He's your brother your brother and he died for you and for me because he wanted to be with us so much he wanted to be in fellowship with us so badly that he not only became a man he not only became our relative but he died for us he suffered for us amazing as I heard somebody say one time and it's People might take theological issue with it sometime, but I, I love the way he said this. Um, I think it was Max Licato who said this. He said, Jesus Christ loved you so much that he would rather go to hell for you than to go to heaven without you. And I like that. And that's a lot of what he's saying right here. He loved you so much that he goes, I don't want to live without you. I don't want to. Heaven will not be heaven without you. Now I go, man, heaven... There are people I can think of. I wonder if it'll be heaven if they're there. And Jesus looks at the lowest, the least, the, the most pathetic of all of us on our worst day. And he says, heaven won't be complete without you being there. Wow. 
How does that make you feel? That this is the God of the universe saying, you're that important to me. I love you that much that I'll die for you, that I'll give myself for you, that I will adopt myself into your family. I'll make myself of no reputation. I'll humble myself even to the point of death. He didn't have to. It's so amazing that he did. And the more I read of how great he is, the more I'm impressed that he wants to have anything to do with me. Have you ever had one of those things where you meet somebody who's supposed to be kind of important and, you know, you don't really know much about them. They're maybe important in a different area than what you're familiar with. And they're just a nice person. And then you read something in the paper about them or you hear a story, somebody tells you something, you go, wow, you're a bigger deal than I thought. Well, again and again and again, you can't read too much of the Bible and not continue to be impressed with Jesus Christ is bigger and bigger and bigger than we have any idea. And he is closer and closer and closer to us and loves us and cherishes us more than we can ever imagine. The Bible says, magnify the Lord with me. To magnify, usually we think of it as make something bigger, but really what it means is look at something closer. See, you can't exaggerate how big Jesus is. You can't overstate who he is. At the same time, it's kind of like a telescope. You turn it around, you get a different perspective too. And Jesus is as far above us as we can, way beyond what we can imagine, and yet he's closer to us than we can ever fathom as well. And it's great because the more I study about him, the more I look at Jesus and see him, the more I realize, wow, he's all that and he's all mine. Let's pray. God, we love you. We just, sometimes we, we stand in awe of who you are. We read this stuff and it's stuff we kind of know, but it puts it in a, such a way, it reminds us so strongly of your greatness and your littleness, of your, the magnitude of who you are and the intimacy with which you relate to us. We're so glad you're our brother. We're so glad you're our God. You've made us. You own us. Do whatever you want with us. We drag our feet. We complain. Sometimes we don't approve of what you do, but we know deep down inside it's your deal. You know what's best. You know us so much better than we know ourselves. So God, just work in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't believe I'm five minutes over and I had got started eight minutes sooner. But I don't know, how much, what of this stuff could I have cut out? I don't, by the way, on Wednesday nights, if I go a little long and you need to get going, don't ever feel bad about walking out. It'll be okay. Let's all stand.